Well, thank you so much for making the time to join us at Jay Fuller Interviews. You can certainly subscribe on the YouTube channel, Jay Fuller Interviews. Join the Facebook group, Jay Fuller Interviews, or follow on Instagram and Twitter, Jay Fuller Interviews. And now we are broadcasting on all the podcast channels, whether it's iTunes, Anchor, Spotify, or Google Podcasts as the Backfire Podcast with Jeff Fuller of Jay Fuller Interviews. And I certainly love people's stories because I believe it makes our stories better, more impactful, less ignorant, and certainly uh, causes us to learn from one another. One with a tremendous story is Kareen McCandless. Kareen, so good to have you on. Good to be here. Thanks. So for those that are unaware, we're going to get into it, but your brother, Christopher Johnson McCandless, also known as Alexander Supertramp. Where did that name come from, do you think? You know what? I don't speculate on where that name came from. A lot of people do, but um, it's not noted in any of Chris's journals. And none of the people that I've spoken with, um, or that most importantly, John Krakauer spoke with while he was researching, you know, when he was working on and writing Into the Wild, there was never an answer specifically as to why he chose that uh, name. So, And so we're going to talk a lot more about your brother and about your life. Uh, but right now we want to bring up Eric Halfacre as we talk about Friends of Bus 142. Eric, welcome to the show. Thanks for having me. Eric, talk to me a little bit. What is Alaska like and how difficult is it to uh, make your way around, especially in 1992 as a uh, college graduate? Um, I mean, Alaska is obviously humongous. It's more than twice the size of any other state in the country. And uh, with, at that time, less population than any other state in the country, uh, certainly the most sparsely populated. So uh, there was a lot of wilderness and uh, wilderness travel anywhere can be extraordinarily dangerous, um, but even more so uh, there in Alaska with the glacial fed rivers and other obstacles that he had to face. And this summer, an interesting development was the magic bus that Chris uh, spent time in and found was removed uh, following what seems to be uh, a second death. Uh, several rescues have taken place as people try to make their way to the bus. Um, Eric, in your opinion, was that wise for them to remove the bus? Um, <clears throat> excuse me, I, I have a kind of a, a personal and a professional opinion on that. And and personally, I think that it would have been nice to see it, you know, stay there forever until it basically rusted into the ground and uh, have it remain there for, for people to visit. Uh, but professionally, I think that the state did exactly what they had to do. And, you know, they're, they're looking at it from a safety standpoint and from a manager standpoint and uh, mitigating that risk as much as possible. And, um, you know, that it's going to be in a place now where a much wider audience can can get the opportunity to see it. And hopefully it will cost the state and the park and the uh, local government and fire departments there less money in rescues. And Kareen, for yourself, you are the author of The Wild Truth, came out in 2014, also the sister of uh, Chris McCandless. Kareen, when you heard or how did you hear that the bus was going to be removed from uh where your brother stayed? Well, I didn't hear that it was going to be removed. I heard that it had been removed. So there was no, um, there was no forewarning or anything, which, which I understand. I mean, the, um, 
the powers that be, the the Department of Natural Resources uh, in the state of Alaska, as as Eric said, they had a tough decision to make, and um, I I understand a lot of people were very angry that they didn't you know reach out as if they needed permission from Chris's family to remove the bus, and it wasn't Chris's bus. Um, obviously, it's it's attached to Chris's very well known story. Um, and I, I respect that as well, but it also, you know, is something that had been there long before Chris ever stumbled upon it. It had its own history in Alaska. And, you know, more importantly, um, it was something that was under the care and responsibility of the state and, um, the locals that live in that area had to deal with, you know, the rescues and things that were happening. And, you know, it, it, I think it's important to point out the majority of people that went there did so safely, you know, um, on the website that I saw you had up, um, Eric did a great job of putting up, uh, if you go to community and there uh, is a section there where you can click on visitors and people can see photographs. And again, we, we haven't done um, any large, um, outreaches with this website yet. This is all very new. Um, but there, uh, yeah, there's just a sample of a lot of people who have, you know, found this website and have connected with us and sent the pictures of being there. And these are all people that, that made their way there safely, um, did the research before they went and were able to get there and back safely. But unfortunately, you know, there were a lot of, um, rescues that had to take place. And, it, it wasn't the place of me sitting on the East Coast of the United States to make a determination as to what should happen with the bus. So whenever I was asked publicly about that, I never gave an opinion. I always said that I think it should be what the people of Alaska want and what their decision is. Um, so I didn't know ahead of time, the commissioner of um, the DNR certainly didn't need to be worried about what my reaction was going to be, or if I was going to go on social media and try to get people to circle the bus and save it, you know? So, um, she called me, um, commissioner Corey Feige. I'm not saying her right, her current last name correctly. Um, she took the time to call me and let me know after it had been strapped underneath the Chinook helicopter that it was being extracted. And, um, she had said that, you know, she felt that there would be some time, um, before it would be made public. So I could sort of absorb it, um, emotionally and, and, uh, but my phone and Eric and I had just been talking that day and, uh, my phone started binging, bing, 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 bing. And I'm not even on social media very much, but people were already, people saw it flying through the sky <laughs> underneath this helicopter and were already pinging and posting photographs and things. So I, I knew that, um, it was going to be a lot to deal with. So it was an interesting summer, wasn't it, Eric? And very much Eric, for you, uh, friendsofbus142.com is where you can certainly find more information. And uh, there is a place to donate uh, and fundraise for um, what's going to take place with the bus. One thing that I read in the timeline is how the bus began to get vandalized over time. Eric, for you, how disheartening was that to hear and see? Um, well, the first time that I visited the bus was in 2009, and at that point, uh, most of the glass that had been in it when uh, Chris visited um, was was still in it. Uh, the 142 that's in that classic shot of him that's scrolling by there, 
that was still intact. Um, I mean, it was, besides it was a little faded paint, pretty similar to when he was there. Uh, the next time that I visited it, there was a little more <laughs> in the way of broken glass and uh, some more parts had been stolen out of the bus. Uh, at one point, even previous to my first visit there, I believe the dashboard was pulled and sold on eBay uh, or the, the dials. And uh, by the time that I went there with Kareen in 2014, um, somebody had just opened up with a rifle on the side of the bus and basically completely erased the 142, as you can see there going by. Um, they're shooting it off. Almost all the glass was gone. Uh, there was a lot more, a lot more damage and a lot of trash. And it, it definitely, you know, it was still a very special place, but it, the, the weight of the vandalism could be felt there. Um, so I'm, I'm happy to see that it's going to go to a place where it will be preserved now and, and available to future generations even. Whereas if it had stayed there, I don't know that it would have lasted long enough for, you know, my kids to have even gone and seen it when they were old enough. Yeah. And with respect to people that made the hike in, the artillery that was brought in to, it looked like it was shotguns, wasn't it, Eric? Um, there was a big pile of 5.5 millimeter brass right outside when it had happened. So I would, I would say that was in the AR. Okay. Okay. So, um, I mean, nobody was bringing that in with a backpack. So, um, you know, I, I think in some respects, uh, many people that that are local there uh, respected what it meant to others that came from all over, you know, the world to see it. And, and in some respects, um, some people just wanted to see it go away. Um, some of the people that, that lived there locally. And I mean, no disrespect with that. I think that... Um, I respect everyone's opinion. I don't respect someone uh, shooting up the bus like that because uh, it's not necessary and it certainly isn't the bus's fault. And um, I just think that that wasn't the, the right way to um, to share their opinion. Yeah. And it's definitely unfortunate. And I think that uh, when anything becomes a tourist attraction, some of the locals have a hard time with that instead of uh, looking at as a memorial. Um, Eric, could you just share how people can donate and get involved? I apologize. The screen behind me, my um, clicker isn't working, but I know that you have stickers that were available for uh, those that wanted to support Bus 142. And also you hope to have hats and some other um, things that people can purchase to help. But how can people donate and why is it important for people to donate to this or on this page, friendsofbus142.com? Sure. If you go uh, to friendsofbus142.com, uh, right at the top and in a few other places, we have a donate button. And if you click through there, uh, it'll take you to the uh, university's foundation page where you can actually donate directly to the project, which is a 5013C. Um, so that's, that's how we're asking people to uh, support this. And what that money goes to is uh, building the exhibit for the bus that will be at the uh, University of Alaska Fairbanks campus. It's going to be an outdoor exhibit that will be available to the public free of charge. Um, so it'll be open during business hours, but it'll be outdoors and away from the main museum building. It sounds like potentially in a, a wooded area um, so that people can still have some of that, uh, you know, Alaskan wilderness around them while they're experiencing the bus. 
um, it's you know definitely important for anybody who you know has the means and, and feels compelled to do so to uh, help support this because we want to make sure that again it's available for all the other people that the story has affected um, to go and see one day for themselves. Yeah, and we've got um, a lot of information on the website as well for people because you know our, our hope is is trying to do something positive like make the best of a unfortunate situation so the bus had to be removed um the museum is going to do a beautiful job of putting this exhibit together it's going to take some time um i mean just that that the elements with the weather is just one thing that that keeps the building of an exhibit and the restoration work that has to be done in the bus it slows that down for a large period of time um so you know, our hope is that all of the people that have been touched by this story from around the world will continue to bring that tourism into Alaska um, that, for the most part, is wanted um, for people to come in. And so they can go to a safe place and visit the bus. And of course, it's not the same, but there's also a lot of people that never would be able to make that hike or do that safely. So for them to be able to visit the bus and the museum um, into the wild is required reading in oh, like almost 4,000 high schools and colleges across the country. Um, I speak at a lot of those schools and for it to be in an educational facility, I think is, is a bonus. Um, and they're going to tie this in with um, wilderness survival and all kinds of different things that I think can be um, a benefit to not just the local community, but people that are coming in to visit. And then um, Eric has done a fantastic job on the website um, where you can, there's a section that says for those inspired to visit Alaska. Um, so our hope is that people will come and, and spend their time and pay their respects at the bus exhibit, but then, you know, take other trails and go off. And, and Eric's done a really good job. And we have more that are going to be posted. Some um, staff at the museum has given us ideas of their favorite trails and have those things posted on the website to where people can go and experience, you know, that real raw, beautiful Alaska. Um, Eric was born and raised there. So he has, um, you know, his input is um, uh, a great value to, to me. And I'm so glad that he's um, helped us with this site and um, just being able to have the input and the people that have already visited that area and the videos and the stories that they've shared with us. Um, it's really, you know, that whole point of that website is just to build this community around this idea of what draws people to the, into the wild story. So Eric, a couple questions, then we'll let you get out. But uh, the first is the bus in the movie is not the actual bus. Where is the bus from the movie located? The bus from the movie is located at uh, 49th state brewing company which is in uh, Healy. It's uh, basically a couple miles south of Stampede Road uh, on the east side of the highway. Um, they have the set bus there, and it is a really, truly, faithfully uh, accurate re representation of, of what that bus looked like um, at the time that, that Chris was there. They did a really good job with it, and you can go see it and actually walk up onto it um, if you visit there. And Eric, for yourself, when were you first made aware of the book Into the Wild or the story of Chris McCandless? Um, I was very young when it was airing on the news uh, that they had found him and were still wondering who he was in the beginning. Um, and I kind of vaguely remember that from, from childhood because it was very talked about in Alaska at the time. 
Um, and then I actually didn't read the book until quite a bit later than that because I was very young. But um, it's kind of always been just, you know, a, a part of a part of the culture up there. It's it's a very well known story. So again, Eric Halfacre makes up time along with Kareen McCandless. And Eric, uh, final question for you. It's uh, we live or I live here in Vermont and we pride ourselves in the Green Mountain State and how it gets so cold and how people that don't have their winter tires on while they're flatlanders and they need to get their tires on before they come visit. Can you just talk about how uh, immense a little bit more Alaska is, but also how it just reveals the beauty and just one can get lost in the freedom that Alaska provides. Sure, actually, uh, my wife and I just last night were watching some YouTube videos from some friends of ours that are still up in Alaska that have been doing some cool trips. And uh, we started talking about that, that since coming to the lower 48 and living here, I don't know that we have ever spent a night where we were more than two miles from the nearest person. Um, in Alaska, it was pretty routine for that to be more like 20. And people that venture out even further can be, you know, 100 or more miles from the nearest person. That's just not possible anywhere else in the rest of the country. Um, <clears throat> the scale of the wilderness is, is on, you know, it's just a completely different uh, environment. I think the number that I had seen is that you can never be anywhere in <clears throat> the rest of the states further than 18 miles from a road. Um, there's always at least a logging road within 18 miles of you. In Alaska, you know, that number is many hundreds of miles. So um, it's it's truly the last frontier. Yeah, pretty special place. I know that my dad has always said that he would love to go visit. He's going to be, turn uh, 84 at the end of this month. And um, he just loves looking at the magazines and we're looking at YouTube right now because Alaska certainly is a special place. Uh, Eric, thank you so much for making the time and joining us uh, this evening. Oh, thank you. Thank you for having me. And again, that's Eric Halfacre. Friends of Bus142.com is where you can certainly find more information and uh, hear what's taking place with the bus in the museum and certainly donate, jump online and uh, see where you can give and just purchase a hat or a t-shirt or a sticker if you want to do that as well. But uh, Kareen, you wrote The Wild Truth in 2014. At that point, how many schools were using the book Into the Wild as required reading? Oh, I mean, I think it was around 3,600. Yeah, at the high schools and colleges. So knowing that, is that what prompted you to finish the story or to give clarity to the story, knowing that so many students were reading John Krakauer's edition of Into the Wild? Um, in a way. I mean, um, I was a consultant to John while he was writing Into the Wild. He really wanted to make sure that he understood Chris um, fully. And there was a lot of things about our childhood that I needed John to understand, to be able to understand Chris. But at the same time, I gave John this information. I told him not everything, but almost everything. And I also told him that he couldn't write it down. <laughs> um, and at the time, I was 21 when Chris passed and John started researching this book of his, Into the Wild. And um, John was a very highly respected uh, climber and, and 
freelance writer, but he wasn't, you know, the John Krakauer that everyone knows. Sorry, he, you know, he wasn't Into the Wild was his first best-selling book. Um, he wasn't known globally as this incredible author that he is. I didn't think anybody was going to read the book about my brother. Um, it was important to me to explain him to this person, but I didn't have any idea that it was going to morph into, um, you know, the international, just huge book that it, that it is. I mean, John's book is, it's in something like 38 languages. It's published in over 60 countries. So, you know, these are just the schools in the U S I'm talking about. I get messages from students all over the world in multiple languages that have used it and, and teachers and professors and, you know, from all over the world that, that are using it in their curriculum. So, I mean, it was the catalyst for me deciding to write my book. Uh, I mean, I didn't write the book until 20 years later, my book. Um, you know, in, in between that time, I worked as a consultant. Oh gosh, that's such a long story. So, you know, uh, worked with John on the content of, of the book into the wild and um then gosh that was 1996 chris passed away in 92 his outside magazine article death of an innocent was published in 93 um it generated more mail to the offices of that magazine than any other article had in the history of the magazine so uh john wanted to further explore the story and he made an agreement with my parents to write the book, which became Into the Wild and was published in 1996. Um, Sean Penn had read the book and for 10 years kept his foot in the door wanting to make a film. And it wasn't something that we were really ready to do. And the time came that, that we thought it made sense. And uh, Into the Wild, the film was out in 2007, I believe it was. And and then, of course, I don't write my book until, you know, 2014. Um, I never intended to write a book, um, but working with students, it took me a long time. It took me, gosh, probably 10, 15 years to start accepting the invitations that I was getting from schools to go and speak with them. And um, this it surprised me how much the students wanted to know about me and how Chris had affected my story. And really, you know, it became, instead of just this assignment that they were given, Chris became this real person because his real flesh and blood sister was in front of them. And with that, they focused so much more on the story and it really became, you know, a, a lesson and all the important lessons that they could take from the story that they would take outside of the walls of those classrooms. And um, the letters and the responses that I would get afterwards just really weighed heavily on me and the probably the most important thing is the students wanted to understand why chris left the way he did and why he didn't speak to our parents again and why he was so angry and um and i answered honestly and the effect that it had on the students to have the rest of the story and to fill in all those blanks that really were my fault that they were that they weren't answered in into the wild um, you know, I have to take accountability for that. And uh, I understood that they could learn so much more. 
and you know chris always said that the greatest inspiration can only come from truth and um john's book is certainly honest uh it's just not the entire story and and that's on me not on john well let's pause let's let's pause right there because i think that you um had the best intentions you share that over and over about not protecting your parents but really believing that they could make a turn before we get to that part of the story um you've said often that if chris would have grown up to be an adult you think he would have been much like john Krakauer. when did you feel that way about john Krakauer? as soon as i met him yeah what was I it about him um He's highly intelligent. He's genuine. Um, he's he has this fervent energy, and he he's very interested. But you kind of feel this sense of skepticism, kind of behind. You know, he 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 wants to. You know, he's a journalist. You know, he wants to investigate. He wants to learn more. He wants to get to the bottom of things, and. Um, you know, I think he sensed in me that there was more to be told and he didn't try to force it out of me in any way, shape or form. I just, you know, I was probably not real friendly and open to John the first couple of times we spoke because, um, I mean, I was polite, but, but I didn't really want a book written about my brother. Um, he was a private person. Um, but I agreed to talk with John on the phone for the outside magazine article. And then I agreed to meet with him and speak further when he was um, doing, you know, the further work to turn that into the book. And as soon as I met him, I just sensed that he wanted to understand Chris better for the right reasons. And that he was interested in being fair to Chris, um, that Chris wasn't here to speak for himself and um, he wanted to do justice by, by him and by all of those that can learn. But again, I say all of those that can learn from him. I mean, John had no idea that this book was going to turn into what it did. Um, so, yeah, but I just, I don't know. I just sensed. And, and when I say, you know, I don't openly suggest that Chris would be like John Krakauer, but whenever people always ask me, that's how that statement came about. People always ask me, what do you think your brother would be like now? you know, if he had lived and I just, that's the best answer I can come up with. I think it'd be a lot like John Krakauer. <laughs> uh, Corrine, when you think back at um, not wanting to share this story about Chris, um, even now, and we spoke off here and I said that it's very delicate because so many people want to hear the behind the scenes and dig deep, but Chris was your brother that you lost, that you did not see for, two years and lost contact and then found out that he had passed. When you do interviews, how difficult is it even after all of these years just to talk about your brother? I mean, I'm very proud of Chris and I respect what um, his story means to so many people and the positive messages that I get about people making productive, impactful, positive changes in their own lives. Um, I just read one shortly before this interview. I get multiple emails every single day. I mean, I have for, what, tw over 25 years now. Um, 
and I read all of them. I can't possibly answer all of them because I have to work and I have to raise my children. Um, but I do read everything that I receive and all the messages that I get on social media. I'm not much of a social media person, as you know, um, but uh, I do get through everything and it and it it affects me and it affects how I help people now. I mean, I, I travel and, and do um, not just speaking engagements at schools, but uh, as you know, I, I raise funds for domestic violence prevention and child abuse advocacy and awareness. Um, and I've never left one school where one student, at least one, didn't reach out for help for the very first time with the issues that they were dealing with, um, you know, in their own lives and in their own families. And uh, the first time I went and spoke at a school and that happened, it really blew me away and it just continued every time. And um, then the follow-up letters that I would receive from the teachers or from that student themselves or from parents, um, I just realized that it, it could do so much more and have such a, a, a positive impact um, so, you know, but to be honest, every time that I go, I don't want this to come across the wrong way. Every time that I am heading to do a speaking engagement and every time I'm getting ready to sit in front of the camera and do an interview, I think, God, I don't want to do this anymore. Yeah. You know, um, I don't, I I'm not a shy person at all. Everyone that knows me knows that, but I don't really like talking about myself. Um, there's a lot more important things to talk about in this world. Um, uh, I enjoy talking about my brother, but it's tough. Um, but as I said, every time I'm going to a school, I think it's probably the last time I'm going to do this because it's tough. Yeah. It's probably the last time. And then some student comes up afterwards with tears in their eyes and just needs someone to talk to and needs someone to identify with. And every time I think to myself, how would Chris's story have possibly been different if someone had come and spoken to our school yeah. and, and was open and honest about these things. And, you know, the issues that we dealt with as children, were not, you know, they seem extreme to some and they seem like nothing just, nothing to others. It's everybody brings their own perspective of their past experiences to the story. Um, but I think part of what makes it so relatable is it's not so much the specific issues of what we dealt with as, as in it, within the family, but it's, it's, um, you know, just the issue of dysfunction and every family has some sort of dysfunction. And when, when lies and manipulation and, and blame are kind of tied into those things, and, and violence and, and abuse of different degrees, um, you know, the devastating effects that that has on children and on families. And um, I think the reason that Into the Wild is such an, a, a useful tool in that toolbox is because it's such a well-known story, right. whether it's from the book that has been sold millions and millions of copies and is all, the, all these countries all over the world, or whether it's from the movie that had, you know, such global success and critical acclaim, everyone thinks they know the story. And then, and again, I don't do much to promote anything that I've 
done. And, and, but, you know, if people find the book or if they see an interview or, uh, I mean, I'm, I'm grateful. My book is a bestseller and it's printed in like seven countries. It's not into the wild, but you know, it's, it's done well. Um, and it could do even better if I ever tried to push it and market it. It's published by HarperCollins. HarperCollins, Harper One did a great job with all of that. But then the next book comes, the next book comes. And um, sometimes I feel like I haven't really done my part to continue the push. And I know how important the message is. Um, but I also have kids to raise and so many other things to do. And um, I feel like when people, it's out there and I feel like the people that need to find it will find it. And, um, I know that it can, can help them. Um, I don't even know if I answered your question there. Yeah, you certainly did. And it's a tremendous story and I believe it's uh, certainly worth telling and we're trying to uh, do that. Um, something that you are aware and I just wanted to share with the listeners as well. Um, you are the most difficult person for me to track down. I've been doing these interviews. I don't believe that. Well, since um, I mean, maybe it is because I, I tried. I try to be very anonymous. <laughs> but wait, let me finish up by saying, so people understand. I don't want people to think that you know when I'm doing these presentations and they come that I'm not genuine with my experience there. I I thoroughly enjoy being there and connecting with people, and when I leave. I can't wait to do it again. Right. You know, when I'm on the way home after connecting with people and hearing their stories and, and, and seeing how Chris's story has helped and, and, and hearing my story and how I learned from him and, you know, all the things that I've, you know, it's, uh, it, it motivates you to continue again, but that doesn't mean the next, the next time I'm not, Oh gosh, here I go. Again. Well, <laughs> it's just an emotional roller coaster. It can be, it can be, uh, it can be tough, but, most good purposeful work is difficult. So I think that, um, you know, I, I feel called to do this work. So I keep doing it at we, whatever level I can manage. Well, we appreciate you doing that. And I am, um, I lost a cousin uh, in Ramadi in 2005. He was killed in action. And his parents say and have said that they always uh, wanted him remembered. But each time there is a a memorial service or something that takes place or even veterans day, they have to relive that loss. And it's just, um, there's heartache and there's heartbreak in those moments, even though the story and the memory deserves to be, to be shared. Um, what I was saying before is that, uh, as I was trying to track you down and uh, invite you to come on for an interview, as my daughter finished into the wild, it was her summer reading. Uh, I actually came across Billy and uh, was speaking to her, and she seemed very excited about joining um, the interview. People might not know who that is. That's my, my mom. And, that, and that's your mom. And uh, then she had heard that I also had reached out to you, and your mom politely declined. Could you just kind of fill in the gaps between the book Into the Wild, uh, the movie that Sean Penn did in 2007 that brought out some more of the reasoning, the highlighting of uh, why Chris did what he did and went to Alaska. And then in your book, The Wild Truth, as you share about some of that um, abuse that took place in your home. Well, it took a lot of chapters to work through all of that. So, um, and it's a very 
uh, sensitive and very layered topic as as it typically is. Um, I guess, I mean, how do I summarize? My parents are not villains. Um, you don't learn lessons from villains. You learn lessons from humans. They made some... Um, they made some bad decisions and they made some mistakes. Uh, everybody does. And um, I think the most difficult part of that is, is that they didn't learn from those mistakes. So I'm the youngest of eight kids. Most people don't understand that. It's, it's in into the wild, but it's very yeah. kind of nuanced. And I mean, you know, I go and speak at all of these schools and I do corporate things and I do these fundraisers and, when I say I'm the youngest of eight children, everyone's, I mean, they, and it's, and it's in the movie too, but it's, it's not fleshed out. It's not explained. So it's really easy for that. There, you know, the, the dynamics of the story and especially the movie, you know, just the visuals, everything's so beautiful and, and, and everything's so powerful that it's easy to lose those little details in there. And they're purposely kind of buried a little bit. Um, I don't want to speak for John or for Sean, but that was my story to tell, apparently. And um, for it to be done fairly and justly and, and right. And, um, you know, I'm self-deprecating in the book. I mean, you can't talk about other people's mistakes without being very open about your own. Um, and the lessons I learned from that. So from the mistakes that I've made. Um, but you know, I, I think becoming a parent myself is what really prepared me. I mean, going and speaking at the schools was one thing, but becoming a mother was really kind of what brought everything full circle for me to be able to to write The Wild Truth. And, um, and as you know, from reading it, I share those details in there, but I'm the youngest of eight. Uh, Chris and I have the same mother and father but there are six other children from my father's um, first wife, Marsha, but the households were intertwined, meaning Chris and I, our ages are intermixed with the other six kids. I'm the youngest, um, but there is also a son from, you know, Marsha has a son that's only three months older than Chris, my mom's son. And my mother was my father's um, secretary. Um, that's how they met. And um, things happen. And, and sometimes uh, humans don't make the best choices. And, um, you know, Chris and I were, um, you know, probably we're not supposed to be here in the way of uh, that was a family that was ongoing. And, um, uh, could you just share, um, I believe it was 1986 when tr Chris took a trip out to California and then everything was revealed that it was not a second marriage, but everything was actually well, taking place. Well, kind of. I mean, again, it's it takes so many chapters to, because to, you really have to get into a child's perspective. Yeah. To, you know, I had to write from many different perspectives throughout the book. And I think that's what makes it so relatable when you're young and you're, you don't know what sex is. You don't know how children are born and you're dealing with this violence in your home every day. 
that you have been told is your fault. And Chris is three years older than me. So Chris held all of this blame on his shoulders, watching what his mother and his little sister are going through. And, and you know, and our mother was, was the main victim of um, our father's drunken rages, but, but um, you know, she, it became worse. She became his accomplice later in life. And, um, and again, it's just too difficult to explain in a short interview. Um, I'm not trying to sell the book. It's free at most libraries, but if people really want to understand the story, there's a lot to it. And um, so, you know, my, my father's first wife dealt with, and, and children dealt with a lot of abuse and, um, but we knew our brothers and sisters going up, growing up. It wasn't like Chris graduated from high school in 1986 and went on this journey and then figured out there was a whole second family. We knew our brothers and sisters growing up, but we were, you know, there's 12 years between my oldest brother that has a different mother and yeah. me. And so think about that. Think about all these other children knowing that you and your brother are the result of an affair that your father had and watching what their mother was going through and what they were going through, yet none of them and their mother, their mother, Marcia, never treated Chris and I poorly. Hmm. And she taught her children that it wasn't our fault. Chris, I get emotional thinking about her and, and, and I owe her a lot. Um, but cause you know, I'm close with my brothers and sisters. We don't, you know, some, some of us talk a lot and some of us, you know, talk whenever I make my way out to Colorado. Um, and we all have different feelings about the into the wild story and how it weaves its way through our life. And I try to always be respectful of that. Um, but uh, you know, my parents, our parents, Chris's and my parents, Walt and Billy did, did make sure that we knew them growing up and we spent summers together. But when you're young, you don't know what it means that your ages are all intermixed. Right. You right. don't, you don't understand what that is. And then as you get older, um, and, and you hear little stories, but your older siblings know, and you know, they're not, as you grow up, you just start being told things and hearing things. But then our parents were, you know, don't listen to your older siblings about this, that, and the next thing, you know, they're on drugs or they're, you know, like all, they never took in the responsibility of the decisions that they had made. And, um, those things were always put on other people. And then it just kind of became comical and absurd. Like as grownups, we all just sort of laugh at it now. And it's sad because, you know, there's, there's eight of us, seven living, and there's multiple grandchildren and great-grandchildren. And my parents don't have a relationship with anyone. Their, their mother, Marsha, has a close relationship with them all. And she's not perfect, but that's, that's a parent-child relationship. You know, you're open and honest with each other and you respect each other. And, and sometimes things are difficult. Um, but again, you know, my, my, my parents aren't villains. Um, my father has since passed. Um, my mother is still here. And um, I, I do not blame them for Chris's death. Chris put himself in difficult situations and pushed himself to extremes. 
and he didn't blame them. He held himself accountable for for um, making the mistakes he made and being trapped out there in the wilderness. Um, but I do hold them accountable for his disappearance yeah. and the way he felt he had to leave and not communicate with anyone else in the family. And, um, uh, you know, it, it's not like back, we didn't have cell phones and emails and couldn't, you couldn't text message your brothers and sisters or anything back, you know, like there's, and plus he made an effort. He took on a completely different persona, Alexander Supertramp and just took, and I, and I, I get it. I understand why he needed to do that. You know, he had, um, he had his way of dealing with those um, things that troubled him. You know, I don't want to say haunted him. He wasn't, he wasn't mentally ill and he wasn't suicidal. And if he was, I'd be honest about it. I mean, yeah. you know, I'd be traveling the country, raising awareness for, for suicide prevention and mental illness, you know, care and, and, and better health. Um, uh, he, he just, everyone has their ways that he was very self-aware. People yeah. think that Chris was very selfish by leaving the way he did and not communicating, but there's a difference between selfishness and self-awareness. And I think Chris understood incredibly well the things that he needed to deal with inside and get past to where he could be a better person and partner and, you know, employee, boss, father, you know, to, to prepare him for those next stages in life. And I, and I say that based on the conversations he and I had in the letters that he wrote to me before he left college and after he graduated college. Well, I certainly agree. And you do a tremendous job of uh, sharing that in your book, The Wild Truth. Actually, I have a first edition behind me over here that I purchased from a uh, local bookstore in oh, Virginia. AFK Books. I love them. Yeah. They're, my own, they're the only store you can get autographed books from. I go and sign them there. Yeah. Well, thank you so much for doing that. Um, Corrine McCandless, uh, the sister of Christopher Johnson McCandless. In your book, you share that you got married during the time that Chris was missing. It also seems extremely obvious how close you and Chris were. How difficult was that for you to make that decision while he was not able to attend? Well, okay, so you're talking about Chris Fish, um, uh, who I was married to. Um, now, we had gotten engaged while, um, my brother was traveling and I knew, you know, Chris had said, I'll come back and find you. And I had left home midnight on my 18th birthday. I left home also as soon as I could and, you know, kind of made my own escape and, and made my own mistakes. You know, Chris went headstrong out away from society and I went headstrong in and um, didn't make the best relationship choices um, early on when I was 18. Uh, when I was in my early twenties, um, I fell in love with a guy named Chris, <laughs> um, uh, and we had gotten engaged, but I told him I didn't want to get married until my brother came back because I wanted my brother to walk me down the aisle. Um, but we learned of Chris's passing during that time. Um, and then the, the wedding was the following year. And I think, um, kind of brought, um, I don't know, some lightness and some, I, I felt kind of torn about, about all of that at the time. I, I, 
it was just so emotional. I, I really couldn't even accept the fact that Chris was that mm-hmm. I'd so we always call him fish because they're both named Chris. So, uh, so it was hard to accept that Chris was really gone. And it was, is almost like being told for me that oxygen wasn't in the air. It's kind of incomprehensible. Um, but, uh, yeah, I mean, um, fish and I aren't married anymore. We're, we're still friends and, uh, we just talked the other day and, and, you know, he went through all of this with me. He's the one that got the phone call that, uh, my brother had passed my oldest brother, Sam, called um the shop that we owned and um and fish had to come home and tell me that my brother you know was dead and um that was i can't imagine you know he he knew he'd never met chris but he knew how incredibly important he was to me and heard so many stories and i can't wait for you to meet him and you know i can't imagine him getting that phone call and having to drive home and you know tell his fiance that Again, Korean McCandless, make us a time, KoreanMcCandless.com. Also check out friendsofbus142.com, friendsofbus142.com. We're going to get you out in a little bit, and uh, we're going to have to have you back. There's so many more questions that I have, and we'd love to have you share, but uh, we'll just get you out in a little bit. But um, during his journey, um, there are a few uh, people that he met. The one that I want to ask you specifically about is that of Ron, the older gentleman uh, in the movie and in uh, the book Into the Wild. Uh, John Krakauer says that was not his real name, but can you just share about the impact you witnessed that your brother had on Ron's life? So in the movie, um, that's the character played by Hal Holbrook, uh, who did a, a great job. I, I met, um, I met, so he, he goes in, in, into the wild, his, his name is Ron Franz and in into the wild. And, um, you know, I, I met him, my mother and I actually went out, um, to the desert and, and Zaborego in California and met him. Um, and before I went out and met him, we had exchanged a lot of letters and, um, after he had gotten the first couple letters from my parents, he was very angry with Chris. And I remember him writing to me saying that he was so upset with Chris for having such caring, wonderful, loving parents and that he had no reason to leave. Um, And, you know, I wasn't one to openly discuss that, but I also, you know, my parents knew the truth and Chris was very open with them and tried to talk with them about a lot of things before he left. And they unfortunately just pushed those things off. and um, they lost their opportunity to have a relationship with their son. Chris wasn't just some teenage rebellious, you know, entitled little crap kid. Like he, he just, he wasn't. Um, and, uh, you know, he felt deep and he tried to discuss a lot of things and a lot of truth. And the truth was not something that was allowed to be discussed. So, um, so I wrote letter back to him, um, again, not, you know, you know, my parents deserved the opportunity to grieve and you, you, I think started this whole interview out with, with, with that, you know, I wanted my, I didn't want John to write all of the rest of the details about our childhood. 
in into the wild because I didn't think that was fair to my parents. And, and John had no interest in doing that either. Um, uh, but he wanted to be accurate too. I mean, someone with such a, a I, I think now I kind of balk at the, like John is just this truth, truth, truth journalist. And for him to have the rest of this information, but then respect my wishes to not share it. I mean, that must've been, I apologize to him all the time about that now, especially while I was writing my book. But um, anyway, uh, it was important to me. I guess that was the first, you know, now come to think of it with you asking this question, that was the first time I opened up other than talking to John. That was the first time I opened up to a stranger and had to trust opening up about the truth. And, you know, nobody was on social media. There wasn't Facebook back then. I know it's amazing. We look great for being 250 years old, right? But um, when I work with students, they're like, what do you mean you didn't have cell phones? <laughs> like, <laughs> she's that old. Um, but um, that was actually the first time. Yeah, I hadn't thought about that in all this time, but that was the first time I wrote it down and I stuck it in an envelope and I sent it to this man and and said, your, your opinion is unfair. And let me just tell you why. And again, I was, and I think I do a good job in my book of being very fair. And, um, you know, again, I don't, it is what it is. The truth is the truth. And so I shared some things with him and my mother and I went out and he was very polite to her. He just, you know, he understood the dynamics of family and my mom and dad have their own side to the story. And um, he was very respectful to her, but him and I wrote a lot of letters back and forth and he had a greater understanding. And I think what was most important is some of the things I shared with him, these puzzle pieces fell into place for him of some of the things that Chris had shared, but wouldn't, um, uh, you know, wouldn't fully get into the details on. And I, and I think that that rang true for this old man that had such a soft spot for him. Um, and yeah, that was sort of the beginning, I guess, um, of trying to be the voice of truth for Chris, who's not here to speak for himself anymore. Yeah. What a tremendous story. Uh, Kareen McCandless, KareenMcCandless.com, friendsofbus142.com. So we'll get you out with this question, but we look forward, hopefully, to having you back on sometime in the future. We won't put a timeline or time frame on it, but just to have you back, I think, there's so much we can uh, still learn from their story. Yeah, and I think too, as things develop with the bus and people are interested in that, we can share the updates with Eric and and um, yeah, we if if you have a way of people sending in questions, we can figure out how to do that maybe through social media and and be able to answer people's questions and do a Q and A kind of thing through this if that works. Yeah, we'll, we'll make it work. So you've shared multiple times about having two daughters has really allowed you to see the world differently. Could you just explain that a little bit more? Oh gosh, you're a parent. I mean, <laughs> I don't have to explain it to anybody that's a parent. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, so as far as my story specifically, when, so becoming a mother came into my world in an unusual way. Um, uh, that took a few chapters as well in, in my book to explain the book. Long story short, let's see, long story short, a two-year-old blonde 
came into my life that needed a mom and um i wasn't going to be a mom <laughs> like i didn't have any plans to be i liked kids but i knew so i'm very black and white with some things as far as flipping that switch on off and on i knew that the the one way i would be sure to never abuse a child is to not have any kids hmm. and i was very busy i've been self-employed since i was 19 years old i had my own businesses i just it was very easy to decide to not have children um and thank god that this left hook at a left field just all of a sudden you know <laughs> and it was sort of oh my gosh am i going to do this and um best thing that ever happened to me hmm. so i became a mother unexpectedly and um yeah Heather is the best thing that ever happened to me. And no disrespect to my youngest, Christiana, who is the best thing that ever happened to me. I mean, I wouldn't have Christiana if it wasn't for Heather, you know, because I, uh, Heather made me a mom. So uh, let's pause one second. Christiana, she's 14, correct? Yes. Heather's 21 now. How are you doing with homeschooling, with uh, COVID, this pandemic, um, spending time with Christiana that you probably wouldn't have if school was in session like it used to be? Well, there's, there's two aspects to that. So Heather's in college. So, you know, her schedule is sort of half, half virtual, half, um, half in, uh, you know, on campus and that can change at any day. Um, and Christiana, I actually started homeschooling Christiana last year. So I started homeschooling her in the 2019, 20 school year before COVID started. So it wasn't too much of a transition for us. Um, she has Down syndrome. Um, she, uh, my youngest, and um, she is very high functioning. She doesn't didn't really have a fit anymore in the public school because she was um, academically above the work that she would be doing in you know the separate classroom. But she couldn't keep up. Uh, she could do geometry and all these things, but not at the pace in the gen ed classroom. So she was sort of in this in-between place and they don't staff for kids like her, not here in our public school system. They're, 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 you know, she couldn't, she couldn't qualify for a one-on-one -on -one assistant that could do the work and modify it. So she could do that level of work um, because she doesn't have any behavioral problems. I mean, you could get me going on and on and on. I mean, that's a whole nother thing. <laughs> that's, that's a whole nother thing. As far as um, my my beautiful daughter with Down syndrome does not have any behavioral outbursts, so she didn't qualify for assistance for her academics. <laughs> um, there's a lot of layers there too, but as far as one-on-one, -on -one, like having a shadow that would go from class to class to keep her in gen ed. So I decided I would do that myself. Um, and, uh, and it's interesting because so COVID didn't really affect our homeschool situation since I was already homeschooling her. However, COVID did shut down. Normally this time of year, I would be traveling and, and yeah. speaking at schools and at colleges. And, you know, there's there's um, none of that going on now in person. Um, so. Yeah. So yeah, I've just kind of rerouted and, and um, you have to find other ways to generate income because uh, 
she keeps eating. <laughs> um, Eric and I have been so busy. There's times where Eric and I are on the phone 10 times a day dealing with, you know, like when we were setting up the friends of us, 142.com website, and we would just be talking constantly and his, you know, his son and my daughter are pen pals. And, you know, we'd be on the phone a lot with all this work. And then there's times where we don't talk for 10 days or more because we're so busy with our regular jobs that we have to do to, to feed our children. Um, uh, I'm a writer, I'm an editor. I edit for other authors now and, um, and I, I do several other uh, things as, you know, it's a whole nother, whole nother set of, yeah. But well, so the speaking, you know, the speaking I do through the speakers bureaus, but I also do, you know, at least 50% of that is all nonprofit stuff that I do um, at no charge. And so uh, you can't pay the light bill with that. So, um, so it's been interesting not having the speakers bureau be able to book things and, you know, figuring out how to weave through that. But I always, you know, I teach my daughters, you really don't need stuff. Right. You know, and the only thing you can't buy more of is time. So, you know, Chris, Chris always said that everything that happens to, to you in life has an energy to it, which we all learned about that in, you know, basic science classes. Right. And so there's the truth in that everything that happens has an energy. And he would say that you can't control what happens and what comes your way, but you can control how you react to it. And so I keep that with me all the time. And I try to say, okay, this is what's come my way. Um, and I'm not always super successful at, at handling it and not being stressed, but I try to focus on his way of thinking. And, you know, he always said, you can, you can take that energy and you can use it to launch yourself in a positive direction or a negative direction. That's your choice. Yeah. Um, so that's what we do. We just, um, we roll with it and, you know, um, what do they say in boxing? You know, you like duck and yeah, whatever yeah. they say. And I agree. Life's coming your way. You you know you do what you got to do and um, yeah. Well, I know he's also uh, credited with saying something to the effect that the best best adventures are the unplanned adventures. You don't have an itinerary or an agenda that's for those not, adventures. That's, that's so when motherhood come my way. That's I thought about Chris saying that like the best things in life, the most, and you know, I'm thinking that that's, that means, you know, hiking, like I like to hike. And so I'm always like, Oh, that's what that means. No, no, no. <laughs> For me, that meant, you know, Hey, you're going to be a mom now. Surprise. <laughs> you know, oh. no, so, not, in, not in the normal way, but in the, here's a two-year-old cute little blonde <laughs> go. <laughs> It's remarkable the lessons we can still learn, not just from your brother, but from uh, others, if we'll just take the time and listen to somebody's story. And I just uh, appreciate you, Kareen, for making the time to share. Again, we'd love to have you back on, but uh, thank you yeah, so much. Great. I think we can figure that out. Thank you so much for just sharing uh, your vulnerability, but also uh, your triumphs as well, as you continue to share what Chris meant to you, but what we can learn from his life as we... Uh, just grow together and with one another. But Kareen, thank you so much. Thanks, Jeff. Appreciate it. And again, that's Kareen McCandless. Make us up time. KareenMcCandless.com. Make sure you check out the uh, Friends of Bus 142.com. And uh, you are listening to Jay Fuller Interviews on the YouTube channel, the Backfire Podcast with Jeff Fuller of Jay Fuller Interviews on YouTube, Spotify, Anchor, and Google Podcasts. With that, we're out. Make time, listen up, and learn from somebody else. Thanks, all. <laughs>